Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 96. We'll begin with a brief summation of Isaiah chapters 24 through 27 and follow with a consideration of chaos, order, and what comes next. As much as the Tanakh is timeless, this episode finds itself discussing something very much in the spirit of the time in which it was recorded. You'll see what I mean momentarily. Chapter 24 places Yeshayahu in a world falling apart. Cosmic chaos and social enemy, the ground underfoot pitches menacingly. There is an enemy out there, but we can't escape it because it seems to be everywhere. But out of this turbulence, there will be but one thing that stands firm. Verse 23, quote, For the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. This chapter is arguably the best example of content meeting form, where descriptions of chaos and upheaval sound chaotic and upheaving. And the author does this primarily through alliteration. Of Hebrew roots, for instance, in the first four verses alone, there are five examples. Here's a couple from verse 2. Yeshayahu is talking about the breakdown of society and how it will affect everyone equally, whether you're 1% or 99%. Quote, Lender and borrower, creditor and debtor. There are 12 more examples of this alliterative flair, and then there are the Hebrew roots that sound the same, but are slightly tweaked to elaborate on their meaning. Like this from verse 1, quote, Hine Adonai bokek haaretz ubolka, the Lord will strip the earth bare and lay it waste. Do you hear in the Hebrew how the alliteration almost sticks bokek and bolka? Yeshayahu does it again in verse 4 when he describes how the withered earth will be seared. Quote, ovla novla haaretz. The prophecy also calls back to certain key words. The word from the previous verse, novla, repeats. Or take this example of repetition from verses 17 and 18. Quote, pachad vefachat vefach Terror and pit and trap upon you who dwell on earth. He who flees at the report of the terror shall fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the trap. And then there's the repetition of the same sound, the k sound in verse 2 vahaya kaam kakohin kaevit kaadonav kishivcha kegvirta kekona kemocher kemalve kelove kenoshe kaasher nosevo but the word that repeats consistently throughout this prophecy is eretz land it recurs 14 times because the focus of this dire prophecy is what will happen in the land and to the land it's churning and upheaval, and in the first 15 verses reflect that churning. There are 40 verbs, and there are verses where there are no verbs at all, like verse 2, with all the k k k, -k sounds that pound on your eardrum like a zealous band leader. Chapter 25 cannot leave us in such a dire place forever, and as long as we're pondering ruin, we can also consider the ruin of the wicked. In the first of three sections of this chapter, Yeshayahu situates the evil in an unnamed fortified city. Then he shifts to place the evil amongst the nations, but which ones are unclear. He concludes by identifying Moab as the usual culprit. 
These three sections really do not hang together, but we have seen this before in other chapters where they seem to catch all because of a similar theme, and here is no different. There is the ruin of the wicked and the salvation of the righteous, as in the first part where Yeshayahu praises God for destroying the walls of the fort city, bringing the palace to ruin while raising up the weak and vulnerable, or in the last where Yeshayahu relishes in telling how, quote, Moab shall be trampled under him as straw is threshed to bits at Madmena. Chapter 26 follows the style of a mizmor, or hymn of praise, a song of victory. For Jerusalem, quote, ours is a mighty city. He makes victory our inner and outer wall. Open the gates and let a righteous nation enter. And as we're so busy winning, we'll get tired. But our enemies will lose, lose, lose. Quote, the Lord shall come forth from his place to punish the dwellers of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth shall disclose its bloodshed and shall no longer conceal its slain. Chapter 27 finds God waging war against the sea, specifically against Leviathan. Which begs the question, did our author see Leviathan as a metaphor of some kind, or did he actually believe that in the end of days God would smite the great sea creature? It's hard to say, but what isn't hard to say is that in this endgame, God's enemies will be vanquished, and the righteous will gather to worship on the holy mountain in Jerusalem. So, it's a happy ending, I guess. Thus endeth the summation, and beginneth the consideration. So you know how I said that it's hard to say if the author saw Leviathan as a metaphor, or as an honest-to-God sea lizard? Well, I'd like to explore the former for a little, to consider the Leviathan as a metaphor for chaos and tumult. Run. In a former life, I was a student of international relations and political science. And being a student of these subjects, in a traditional post-secondary setting, I was compelled to read rather lengthy selections from Locke, Hume, Leibniz, and of course, Hobbes. We're all familiar with Hobbes, especially for those of us who are fans of the Bill Watterson's comic, in which Hobbes features as a snarky stuffed Bengal tiger. Except that's where the resemblance ends. We're probably more familiar with the Hobbes who, in his work Leviathan, made the infamous observation about life being, quote, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Leviathan, or as it is known by its more mouthfully title, Leviathan, the Matter, Form, and Power of a Commonwealth, Ecclesiastical and Civil, was published in 1651. It is regarded by scholars and historians as arguably one of the top two works of statecraft alongside Machiavelli's The Prince. It is the first go at establishing what we call today's social contract theory, and focuses on questions of society, legitimate government, and justifications for rule of the many by an absolute sovereign that is not based on notions of divine right. In other words, Hobbes asserts that there are legit reasons to vest all power into the hands of one man that have nothing to do with God wanting it that way or the naked pursuit of power. It could actually be good for the ruled as well. However, any discussion of Hobbes' Leviathan would not be complete without mention of the frontispiece, 
Hobbes worked very closely with French artist Abraham Buss, who rendered the piece in the geometric style. The frontispiece is dominated by a giant crowned figure emerging from the landscape. He clutches a sword and a crozier under a quote from the book of Job from chapter 41, non est potestas superteram quae compreteurei, or there is no power on earth to be compared to him, except depending on the edition of the Tanakh you're using, the verse is either from verse 24, 25, or 33. Now, we'll get into the book of Job in episode 191, and one of the things we'll surely discuss then is the problem of theodicy, or how is it that there is evil in the world if God is all-powerful and good? However, for Hobbes, the book of Job is not about theodicy per se, but about obedience, about how Eov follows God's commands regardless of the circumstances. Because as bad as things get for Eov, from Eov's perspective, not following God's commands has even graver consequences. God punishes, and God punishes with violence. For Hobbes, violence is so essential that it is the foundation of his commonwealth. So when Eov says there's no power on earth to be compared to him, the him is the Leviathan, the great sea serpent. But for Hobbes, him is the giant man who dominates the composition. Upon closer inspection, the giant figure is made up of over 300 persons who are all facing the giant's head. Viewed one way, we see a mass of citizens contained in the belly of Leviathan. Viewed another way, we see them as Leviathan's clothes. The king Leviathan and the citizens of his kingdom are one in the same. They cannot be told apart and the metaphor staging this is clothing. Leviathan is the protector, redeemer, and savior of the civitas, the social body of the citizens united by law. He bears a sword in his right hand as the king's instrument and the bishop's crook in his left, formally uniting them both through his sovereign power. But the crown on Leviathans is the highest symbol of government authority and legitimacy. The city over which Leviathan looms consists of a single grating or cross, where the city's two main roads cross each other. This urban plan was typical for a Roman city, which also had two crossing axes, the Decumanus and the Cardo. By organizing every Roman city like this, the Roman felt at home wherever he went. The lower portion of the frontispiece is a triptych, framed in a wooden border. The center contains the title on an ornate curtain. The two sides mirror the sword and the crozier which Leviathan wields. In the left column, there are images of earthly power, human authority, the castle, the crown, the cannon, weapons, and the battlefield. On the right, the power of the church, represented by the church, the mitre, the power to excommunicate, logic, and the religious courts. You can see the frontispiece at thenextjew.com, where I've linked to the image in all its glory. I alluded to Hobbes in episode 61 when I discussed the moral universe of the Book of Judges, or more like the immoral universe, which Hobbes calls summum malum, the greatest evil. In a world that's powered by violence, it's Christmas. And then in episode 90, in what seems like decades ago, when I brought up Yeshayahu's vision of a different kind of work, I mentioned that... But wherever there's a rise in the uglier and more selfish manifestations of human behavior that tend to manifest themselves in the campaigns for certain presidents or prime ministers, whether it's, you know, I don't know, in the United States or the Philippines or France or Israel, there's an equal, if not greater, rise in intolerance for aggression, for violence against ethnic minorities, women, children, LGBTQ folks, and even animals. It's not acceptable to call me a nigger. 
It's not acceptable to call me a speck. To call me a chink. To call me a fag. It's not acceptable to call me a kike. In other words, our world today, due to a lot of hard work by political leaders spurred on by the thankless grind of community activism and grassroots organizing, looks a lot more like the world where, quote, the many people shall go and say, come let us go to the mount of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may instruct us in our ways and that we may walk in his path. It looks a lot more like that world than the world of rot and sackcloth and ruin. And it's one thing to talk about social breakdown and a grand unraveling as Yeshayahu does so colorfully, but it's another thing to contemplate it actually happening in your lifetime. And I speak of this from a position of extreme privilege, first as being born in a time of prosperity and at a time of relative peace and safety, although I did worry for about two years that I would be vaporized by a Soviet nuclear warhead before graduating high school, but... I was consoled by the fact that if I lived close enough to Ground Zero, I'd be die die instantly, and I wouldn't have to roam the nuclear winter hellscape looking for canned food while avoiding the cannibal hordes. But still, all those years living in the developed world, the first world, and no invading army, marching through the streets, gas prices are reasonable, even with the cars, you know, so big, they're like giant, giant cars, gas guzzlers. And the biggest climate worries were acid rain that just seemed to kind of go away and that hole in the ozone layer that seemed to just kind of fix itself. And I guess I just assumed either from the, you know, I don't know, hubris or I don't know what, that this run of progress and good times would just keep on rolling. That the economy would continue to grow and civil liberties would include more and more people and healthcare in the U.S. would expand to cover everyone and everyone would recycle and Star Wars prequels would actually be watchable and then we woke up. But Leviathan and the world he represents is not inevitable or irreversible. The world will not be in chaos and tumult forever, although while you're in it or pondering it, it does seem like forever. Ishayahu tells us that God will smite Leviathan and set things right. And in the end of days, for those that have faith and hope, Better days will return. It's just a matter of not giving up. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Send a friend an email to say, hey, you should check out TanakhCast. Or like TanakhCast at the show pages on Facebook or Google+. Or write a brief review at the iTunes Store, Google Play, Stitcher Smart Radio, or SoundCloud. It's a small thing, really, but it will help other people find TanakhCast. Or, if you want to help in a bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast and pledge your shekels, either on a one-time or monthly basis, and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that. And I encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 97, when we continue in the Book of Isaiah with chapters 28 through 31.